0: Providing real solutions for real business challenges. Welcome to FNF Unplug, Season 4. Conversations with professionals across the country, exploring business topics and empowering personal growth in real estate, financial services, and the title insurance industry.
1: Welcome to FNF Unplug. Today we have John Basso Jr., bowler. Longtime salesperson, author, advocate, philanthropist, but most importantly, a fellow Midwesterner. John, welcome.
2: Thank you, Linda. I appreciate uh, all the efforts to work on our schedules and get together. So I'm ready when you are. Thanks.
1: You're very welcome. So, John, you've had quite a journey. Can you tell our audience about the road that got you here The
2: road to here? Well, it was retirement. I worked in the title industry for about 34 years, retired February 2nd of 2022. Uh, I've known Linda and the Fidelity family for many, many years from national meetings. And, you know, prior to uh, the title insurance business, I was a real estate agent for six years. And uh, I spent five years on the professional bowler's tour. So, uh, There's a lot of facets and a lot of chapters to the life that I've built and uh, where I'm at today in Northeast Ohio.
1: Tell me about your bowling career. I think that's fascinating.
2: Well, um, it's a misled youth, I would say. Um, I had a gentleman at the time, he was a friend of mine, told me if I'd help him with his paper route, that he would take me bowling. I was 12 years old. I had played baseball since I was three or four. Thought I was always going to play baseball. I went bowling with Ray Katona, and uh, the rest is history. I started working in a bowling center at 14, turned professional at 18, bowled in my first tournament when I was 17, and then uh, traveled the PBA Tour from 1977 to 1981, back and forth across the country. For a guy who did not go to college, the PBA tour was my college. And it was great for interpersonal skills, marketing, promoting the professional bowlers association, as well as myself.
1: Now, how did you transition from bowling to the title insurance industry?
2: It was a marriage proposal (laughs) and uh, I wasn't going to make enough of a living bowling And I gave a bowling lesson to a woman that said, you should be a real estate agent. So I called up John Carroll University. The following week, I was in classes and I took uh, two classes over a three-month period. Went and bowled the winter tour in 1981. Took my real estate license in May of 81 and got married in September of 81. So... That's how I got into, uh, from bowling, into the real estate world.
1: Well, and I know being a realtor is a great background for the title insurance industry. I too, in the eighties got my real estate license, never thinking it would get me into the title insurance industry. I just thought, you know what? I need to get my license because I need to understand this whole process because I was gonna be a first time home buyer. So it's amazing how paths change, right? Exactly.
2: And I'll tell you a quick story. A lady by the name of Maureen Turney was a marketing rep for a local title agency. I was selling real estate for what today is a large footprint real estate broker out of Pittsburgh. And she ran into me and she said, you know, would you ever consider being a sales rep in the title business? I said, you mean I have to work with real estate agents because we were sort of tough to deal with. And she said, yeah, you would, but I think you'd be good at it. That started a handful of uh, interviews, which got me into the real estate business in 1987 in Northeast Ohio, calling on real estate agents, mortgage brokers, investors, anybody that could uh, create a transaction. I was knocking on their door in my territory.
1: So what do you feel are your success tools for being such a great salesperson? Because I've known you for many years and you are a consummate sales representative. No matter what you're doing, no matter what position in your company, you're always selling. And I think we all know we have to sell every day, but what was your kind of secret of success? I mean, I know with bowling, there was a lot of teamwork going on. I know with the real estate industry, there was just real estate knowledge. What are your success tools for being such a great salesperson?
2: Two things pop into my mind immediately, Linda. One is no matter where you go, be there. That I learned from a gentleman named Bob Law, who's still in his mid-70s and running around the country doing team building functions with title people, salespeople, escrow people. And so no matter where you go, be there. I've always felt like if I'm in a room with you, I'm with you. I'm not anywhere else. I try not to let my eyes wander. I try to be with you. If I'm on a sales call, calling on independent agents, you may only see that agent two or three times in a year. Be with that person. Don't look at your phone. Be tuned in to what's going on between you and them. And the second thing is perseverance. I mean, I'm still an avid bowler at 66 years old, and I'm still learning at bowling. So when you would tell me if you were a prospect, we're not interested right now, that never looked like a hard no. It looked like a maybe I should call back on you. And I called on people my whole career, just hoping to get them on paper. So perseverance and being where you're at. Thank you.
1: That is great advice. I mean, don't be distracted. And, you know, that's kind of hard to do right now. How do you give that advice to someone new in the industry? Because they've grown up with literally coming out of the womb with cell phones in their hands.
2: That's a perfect question. What I would say is, if you have to open your phone up and look at it while you're with a client, tell them before you start talking. I'm waiting for a call. I'm waiting for a text. I'm waiting for a response. I will look at my phone if it vibrates or beeps. I will not answer it if it's not the call I'm looking for. Is that okay with you? And then put your phone away, but don't have it on the table. Don't have it face up. Uh, be with your people. Just be with them. It, you know, I, I used to share that with our salespeople when I was the uh, statewide or tri-state area sales manager. Look, you're only going to see these folks a couple times, and I know I'm repeating myself, but be with them when you're with them, 100%.
1: No, it's definitely worth repeating because trying to not get distracted is very difficult. It's kind of like putting that phone away, even for the night. People are just automatically, it's almost like a knee-jerk reaction, right, to grab that phone.
2: I agree with you. And being retired... I could tell you that hours fell off of my screen time immediately because I was not checking voicemails and or emails all day long, and it's really nice to go to bed and not be waiting on something that's got to happen,
1: so John, I know that advocacy is important in any industry, doesn't matter where you are, whether it's a bowlers association, a real estate organization. And I know this is a passion of yours. How can advocacy help the industry that you're in, as well as yourself and your company?
2: Great question. I will tell you how I got involved in advocacy. I was president of the Ohio Land Title Association in 2002 and 2003. And I wanted to stay involved in ALTA, American Land Title. And I mentioned it to my boss and he said, you know, John, you're a sales guy, you're not really a technician. If you were going to do anything, why don't you try to raise money and be on pack? I had already been the chairman in Ohio and continued that for a couple more years. Today, as a retiree and a member of both American Land Title and Ohio Land Title, I'm still in both of their packs. So uh, advocacy gave me a lot of visibility in the marketplace which is very, very good if you're trying to make a name for yourself and your company on a national basis or a local basis. It put me in front of a lot of people. I was talking about regulatory or uh, federal laws or local laws that could disturb the way a title transaction took place or a real estate transaction. So it was really bringing value to whomever I was talking to.
1: And just a little reminder to our audience, PAC stands for Political Action Committee or Council, depending on where you're at. So, John, with your involvement in TYPAC and with PAC on a local level, what sort of things did that organization or that part of that trade association do overall? Well,
2: we tried to gather money from contributions from our members, and then we passed it out to... U.S. representative or U.S. senators. And locally, we passed it out to state senators or state representatives. There's a lot of confusion about Republican or Democrat. There's a lot of confusion about governors and presidents. The only money these PACs go to are the U.S. Senate, the U.S. representatives, and in your state, state representatives, or state senators. And we were always looking at congresspeople or state legislators that knew our industry or were in a position to help our industry if we needed help. And by that, I would say that it doesn't matter if you're Democrat or Republican or an independent. You want to sit at a table with someone that understands that we take care of the public, buying and selling real estate, refinancing, et cetera.
1: Yeah, the advocate's advocate, right? Correct,
2: correct. And I would say this as a commercial for wherever you are at, if you're a banker, if you're a doctor, a lawyer, you should be involved in your association. You should be willing to write a check at the beginning of the year. Don't have somebody prospect you and call you and beg you. Just write a check and, uh, you know, understand the local laws and the way they work. If you're raising money like I did, what you can do federally or what you can do locally, because states are different and the federal laws are different. So uh, just be involved. It doesn't mean that you have to talk to your legislators. If you want to, there are people in your organization that will prep you for that. But I would share with you, just be involved. And if you want to go the next step and go to Washington, D.C., or in my case, Columbus, Ohio, if it was a state legislature situation, you could call on your people right in your state capitol or at your home or in your home market when those legislators are not at the capital.
1: So, John, let's talk about relationships, because... Not only our trade associations, not only within advocacy, being a bowler, you develop relationships as a salesperson. How can you build these relationships for now, but also use them later for something like mentoring, both personally and corporately?
2: Relationships. I don't know that I'm always comfortable with people say you're always selling you're always selling. There were times when I would walk away from a meeting and did not even ask for the order. I mean, I felt like I was building a relationship and asking for the order at that time was probably not correct. So timing wise, I looked at how to do that. It's like proposing marriage. I don't think that you propose marriage on the first date. And you're successful. So there may not be a lot of people saying yes the first time you knock on their door with flowers and a box of candy. Relationships take much time over a period and repeat visits. And if you're lucky enough, you can build that relationship in someone's office, in your office, in a restaurant, at a trade association. So they're little building blocks. And if I told you, When I got into the title business in 1987, the owner of the agency in Northeast Ohio, who's now in his 80s and still legendary, he said, John, it's a very easy business. Meet 100 people that will give you one order a month and you'll be one of the major producers in the area. You got to go out and meet 100 people. That takes time. And it takes time for them to have the confidence to use you. But it was great advice. Never stop prospecting. And understand that your prospect never wakes up in the morning thinking that they want to make you richer or give you more business. They're thinking about themselves, their transactions. They're thinking about the people that work for them and the people that they deal with every day. So if you're going out there with your ego in your hand, leave it in the backseat of your car. You're going to meet with a prospect Talk with them and talk about them.
1: That was some really great advice right well, there. Thank you are you. just drop in a bunch of these, John. This is great. I mentioned mentoring. I know you're retired now, but after you've been in the business, even if it's just 10 years, maybe 15, maybe 20, maybe 25, what do you think about the responsibility of mentoring those that are just starting?
2: I think the company that we work for. So I'll make it a general statement. I know that this podcast meets people in different industries. So your company is responsible for mentorship and it's how you are trained as an employee. I would tell you that I have no problem whatsoever giving every bit of information I have to a fellow employee, uh, to a title agent, sales rep, or escrow people or manager. I have lived my life and it... It's 40 years plus of building relationships. I could tell you anything that I own, but if you don't do it, you're not going to own it. So what I say about mentorship is it is your duty to do it. You will feel very good mentoring people. And if you think you have secrets, there aren't many. That's me. I think the more you give away, the more comes back to you. And if helping people can work out to be something that you do on every call that you make. Offer your services to their people. They're going to want to see you because you're giving things away that took you time to earn.
1: Very true. So, John, I know we've talked about a lot already today, but there's a topic that is one of my favorites that I like to talk to you about, and it's all about food, fun, and family. Tell us a little bit about food, fun, and family.
2: Well, I don't know where all of you are at in this podcast, but uh, your life started in most cases around a table with people, good food, bad food, probably not with wine when you were a little kid, but your life was transformed around a table, around a meal, uh, around a conversation. And I, I've just uh, taken that to my level of professionalism I would rather be sitting at a table in a restaurant or a cafe with you, if at all possible. First meeting, you have to go to somebody's office. When you can get them out and treat them well and have a conversation, it's a beautiful thing. And uh, I know that Linda's going to get a little bit deeper on this. Food, Italian food, ethnic food, I'm willing to try any kind of food, Uh, some food that people may not want to eat. I actually tried horse meat in Verona, Italy in late November. Uh, I won't tell you that I would be ordering that again. It was completely raw and it was served with uh, extra virgin olive oil. It melted in my mouth. Uh, It's not very American to eat horse meat. It's a very available product in Northern Italy. And I won't say that it's a delicacy but it's on a lot of menus there, and it's grilled or served tartare. That is a very extreme thing. I did not order it. A friend of mine ordered it, but I did have to taste it, and it was pretty good.
1: Well, you're definitely adventurous, but, you know, I will tell you that I am Italian. I know that Karhovic last name kind of throws everybody off, but I did have wine in my baby bottle, and so... (laughs) That's definitely a true sign of being Italian. Plus, my mom used to always say, well, you only eat one meal a day. It happens to last 16 hours at the Italian yes. table, though. So I am very, very in tuned with, with the gathering and the sharing of bread and breaking bread with friends and family and coworkers as well. But let's talk about that adventurous side. Tell me about your travels. Tell me about your cookbooks and everything that you're doing on the food side.
2: Well, I've written a few books, published them, and they were all... The catalyst was a nephew by the name of Richie White that lost a battle to a brain tumor in 1991. And I wrote a book about cancer survivors. I started in 05, and it was published and released in May of 11. A year and a half later, I published an Italian cookbook and then an ethnic cookbook six years later, and they all went to raise money for some nonprofits. So it was a great way to put something in print. I always wanted to have a book in the Library of Congress, and I was able to accomplish that through these books and raise tens of thousands of dollars for the Ritchie White Fund, and some other nonprofits out there. The idea of an Italian cookbook was when I started traveling around the country, people wanted to entertain me at their favorite Italian restaurant. Corporate people, as well as the title agents from Philadelphia to LA and Arizona and all the way up in Seattle and Boston. I mean, people wanted me to go to Italian restaurants. I did that. And I, I'm not going to tell you that I got tired of Italian food, but I knew that the next book would be ethnic recipes because it really gave me a reason to say to people, take me to your favorite Cuban, Hungarian, Jewish deli, whatever it was. Take me someplace that I would not find as a guest in your city. And I was able to walk into a lot of great places, explore a lot of good food. Don't necessarily love it all, but... Uh, It's worth the while to try different things.
1: Oh, definitely. It sounds like that is a great question to ask, even going into a different city or going into a different country, or you could be friends with somebody for the longest time and not even realize what their own favorite food is. And doesn't that tell you something? I mean, people's favorite foods kind of provide you a flavor, so to speak, of their personalities.
2: Exactly. You know, I know a lot of people that will not eat vegetables, they, they will not try some. I've introduced a lot of people to red and white wines that they would not necessarily drink, but when you pair it with food, it's a little more attractive to them, and they can't believe that that red wine that really bit the back of their throat was not as bad as they thought, or a nice crisp white wine or a Prosecco before dinner. Is sort of refreshing and gets you ready for the rest of the meal. So I believe that food should be paired with wine and vice versa. And I feel like this I am a consumer of wine. I am not a connoisseur. I know the areas and I know what I like, but I am by no means going to become a sommelier or, you know, following any of those high educated, structured. Uh, positions. I just like what I like.
1: Well, that's good. So tell us a little bit about the trips you've taken.
2: Well, most of them have been to Italy. Debbie and I started going in 2012. And I will tell you that I get two or three messages or phone calls a month for people that are going to Italy or to France. And uh, I tell everybody to go. If your spouse doesn't want to go, Find someone else to go because you should travel. It's it's a wonderful way to learn about other cultures, the food and architecture, et cetera. Debbie and I have made six trips to Italy, and I made two trips, one time to see a nephew and another time with a couple of guys, which just happened the end of November, beginning of December, because he wanted to buy a piece of property and he needed some guys to tag along with him. It was a different trip. And it was a fun adventure, so. Well,
1: that's great. Well, John, it's been really great catching up with you at FNF Unplugged. If you had one little piece of advice on any topic, what would it be?
2: For the salespeople out there, this is a piece of information that my daughter received when she was working for a local real estate company that was owned by a national mortgage company. She met with one of their executive vice presidents and towards the end of the meeting, he said to her, Deanna, at the end of every meeting, you should look across the table and ask the person, is there one person that you know that you think I should know? And that will open you up to meeting someone that could be a great friend, could mentor you, or could be an opportunity for business in your line
1: of work. That is great advice, thank you. John. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you. And, you know, uh, we have a lot of friends together. Tell your folks I said hello. I thank you for the opportunity, and uh, I hope I could come back and talk with you again.
1: Thanks, John. Perfect. You're welcome. Thank you, Linda.
0: If you have questions, comments, or would like us to feature a specific topic, email FNFeducation at FNF.com. Thanks for downloading FNF Unplugged, a presentation of the FNF family of companies. All rights reserved. This podcast is being provided for informational purposes only. The podcast is not a comprehensive overview of the subject and is not intended to provide legal or financial advice or any endorsement of any product or business. The views expressed by podcast guests are their own, and their appearance on the podcast does not imply any endorsement of them or any entity they represent, including Fidelity National Financial or its directors. Please seek legal or financial advice before taking any action on the matters or products discussed in this podcast.